If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. If you weren't here last week, I issued a challenge uh, to bring your Bible to church. Doing so does not make you a better Christian. Uh, It's not going to make God love you anymore, uh, but it will help you pay attention better, I believe. Uh, It will help you uh, follow along. If we look at a different passage, you can turn there. It will also I encourage you to read your Bible more throughout the week. So I challenge you to bring your Bible to church. Last week we began a series entitled, What Now? Moving forward in a time of transition. And today we're looking at Isaiah 44, verses 1 through 8. Before I read this passage, let me pray and ask for the Lord's help and for his blessing. Gracious God, you told us that your word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing the division of joint and marrow of soul and spirit, and discerning the intentions of the heart. Lord, would you sanctify us in the truth, for your word is truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants listen. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word, Isaiah 44, starting in verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Perhaps you've never heard his name before, but Mark Isambard Brunel was a brilliant man who lived in the late 1700s and early 1800s. While fleeing the French Revolution, he lost his passport and from memory recreated it, being able to get through security checkpoints and fleeing to New York City. Later in life, he moved to London, and his engineering skills became legendary as he laid plans for the first tunnel under the Thames River. In fact, his first underground digging machine made possible London's first tube, or what we would call a subway. Yet what's fascinating about his story is that while construction of the tunnel was going on, Brunel was hounded by clergymen who called what he was doing a flirtation with the underworld. They didn't like this digging underground. They didn't like the change associated with it. Friends, like those clergymen, oftentimes we don't like change. Change can be hard. Yet we live in a world that is ever-changing. Our church is going through a massive change right now. 
but we have a God who doesn't change. He is consistent, and he is still God. And that's what we see in this passage before us this morning. Isaiah prophesied to the people of Israel between the years 740 and 700 B.C. at a time when God's people were going astray. He rebuked them for their wicked ways and telling them that captivity and judgment was coming if they would not repent. In fact, chapter 43 ends with these words, Therefore I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Pretty harsh words, yet our passage begins. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. And then the Lord offers wonderful words of comfort and assurance based on who he is and what he will do. And friends, that's what you and I need to hear this morning. We need to be reminded of who God is, what he is like, and how that impacts our daily life. And so first, we must remember that God is God. Now maybe you're thinking, John, that's silly. I know that God is God. I'm not an atheist. For the love of Pete, I'm here in worship. But not so fast, my friend. You and I are far more prone to forget that God is God than we admit. Now we might not acknowledge it out loud. We might not even think it in our head. But our actions speak louder than our words. We forget God is God and that we live like he doesn't exist or that he isn't isn't who he says he is. In other words, often we don't have a biblical view of God. People say things like, well, my God is a God of blank. That's dangerous for what we end up doing is making God in our own image, a God that fits with our opinions, our political views, our desires rather than submitting ourselves to who God says he is in his word. Or we forget that he is still God living in fear over the present or the future. So who is our God? The heart of this passage is really verses 6 through 8. I was going to just preach them but I really felt that the entire passage of 1 through 8 was what we needed to hear And there's so much in these verses, but I want to point out just a couple ideas about who our God is. First, notice the names that he gives in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. That term, Lord, in all caps, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God. It's personal. It's intimate. It shows that God is one who initiates and who has made a covenant to be our God and we will be his people. He's also the king of Israel. He's the true king. You know, judgment was coming. The kings of Israel and Judah were about to be kicked off the throne and taken into captivity. Yet God was not removed from the throne. In fact, he's still on the throne. What comfort we can find in that reality. He's also the Redeemer. Think back to the book of Exodus when the people were slaves in Egypt. And God redeemed them. He brought them out of slavery through the Red Sea and eventually to the promised land. And he says he's the Lord of hosts. That's Lord Sabaoth. What we sing in a mighty fortress is our God. Shows that he's the ruler over all. 
Everything is under his lordship. But wait, there's more. Not only do we see these names, but then he goes on in the second half of verse 6 to say, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there's no God. He's the first in that he existed before the world. And he's the last and he's above human history. It's a clear example of God's eternality. He's always been. He always will be. Kids, Christmas is Jesus' birthday, but God doesn't have a birthday. He's always existed. And he says there's no God besides him. There are no rivals to the throne. You know, here in the South, we like to joke that there's really no rivals in college football to the SEC. But when it comes to the King of Kings, there's actually no rivals. We can joke about football, but with our God, it's not a joke. It is serious. And then in verse 7, he describes how that he has planned all that comes to pass. If you have your Bible, flip a page over to chapter 46. Chapter 46, verses 9 through 11, we see this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. All of what God is saying here in chapter 46, but in chapter 44 where we are today, can be summarized as his sovereign providence, that he is the ruler over all. He's the one in charge. He's ordained what's come to pass. Nothing happens outside of his plan. My junior year of college, I had the privilege of studying abroad in Mexico. I spent four months there, and it was a wonderful opportunity. When it came time for spring break, I had planned to go with the church that I was attending on a mission trip out into a remote part of Mexico, in the part of Mexico where there's no cell phone service, um, and to, to serve the Lord there. And on the day we were to leave, I got a message from the guy planning the trip saying, the trip's off, we're not going. No real explanation as to why, just simply that it wasn't going to work out. I thought, that's strange, but Okay. So I took a 22-hour bus ride to the Yucatan Peninsula to meet up with some friends to spend the remainder of spring break. The next day, we went to the other side of the Yucatan and checked into a hostel. Amy and I were dating at the time, and I got a message from her saying that I should call my sister-in-law as soon as possible. I thought, well, that's odd. I love my sister-in-law and my brother, but I hadn't talked to either of them the entire time I'd been down there. So I call her only to find out that my mom had had a stroke. And I was 20 years old. I didn't really know what a stroke was. I knew it affected the brain. But the severity of the situation didn't hit until she said, well, so where's the nearest airport? I needed to get home. My mom might not live. And by God's grace, I was two hours from an airport. I went to the person that we had checked in saying I needed my passport. And he called me by the name of my friend. And it wasn't until later that I thought, oh, I might have the wrong passport. But God was good. I had the right one. 
I could have been in a place in the country where I would not have had phone service. I could no way have gotten home. But I did. And by God's grace, my mom lived and she's still alive today. And we could look at that situation and say, man, how lucky. I mean, just everything just worked out just right. But friends, we don't believe in luck. No, God ordained exactly what would happen to provide for me and my family in a moment of need. And that's our God. He's so powerful. He's sovereign over all. What impact does this have on our lives? I mean, we could talk about so many different things, but I want to highlight just one. If God is the creator, the Lord of hosts, the king, then you and I are called to submit to him. That means everything belongs to him. Last year, one of you sent me a quote from C.S. Lewis that I think relates to this passage. Lewis says, The Christian way is different, harder, and easier. Christ says, Give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. Hand over the whole natural self. I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. End quote. God wants you and me to surrender everything to him. Perhaps you've never done that before. And if not, I encourage you to come to him today. Put your trust in Jesus. Submit to King Jesus. But even if you have done so, maybe there's a part of your life that you're still holding on to with like a clenched fist. God, I'll give you everything except my bank account or my reputation or my children or my grandkids. I will hold on to them and nothing ever better happen to them. Dutch pastor and theologian Abraham Kuyper emphatically says it this way. He says, There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Brothers and sisters, God looks at your job and says, Mine. He looks at your plans for the future and says, Mine. He looks at this church, First Therapy, and says, Mine. Friends, this is our God. He's the sovereign ruler over all. He's planned all that will come to pass. And it's tempting to read this passage and to hear this and think, whew, what kind of God is that? I don't know that I want anything to do with him. In the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, a little girl named Lucy finds her way into the magical land of Narnia. She encounters Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they tell her about Aslan, the lion. Mrs. Beaver says that anyone who meets Aslan should be a little afraid of that encounter. To which Lucy asks, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Do you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Friends, our God is not safe. He will radically change your life if you submit to his lordship. But he is oh so good. And that's the second main truth we see in this passage. Look with me at verse 2. It says, Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Isaiah reminds the people of Israel that God made them. And he formed them in the womb. 
It's not a cold statement of fact. No, it's one filled with love. And it's intimate and personal. He reminds them that he chose them, that he initiated with Abram. God chose Abram, not the other way around. Friends, the same is true for us. Psalm 139 reminds us that God knitted us together in our mother's womb, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If you're in Christ, then God chose you. He initiated with you. He came, took away your heart of stone, and gave you a heart of flesh. God's goodness goes even further. Verse 3 says, For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. On the surface, this seems like a general promise of future blessing, but a closer look reveals something deeper and better going on. In the original Hebrew, the word land is not there. It's supplied by translators trying to make sense of what God is saying. So it literally reads, for I will pour water on the thirsty. What is the thirsty? Well, in light of what comes right after about God pouring out a spirit, it seems better that it's people who are thirsty. Not physically, but spiritually. David says in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Jesus picks up on the same idea in Matthew 5, verse 6, where he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness that they will be filled. You see, what Isaiah is saying here, and David and Jesus pick up on as well, is that part of God's goodness is that he satisfies the spiritually thirsty. Friends, our God is so good. He's not up in heaven, perpetually angry, ready to smite you with one small misstep. He's not a cosmic karma player. Yes, he takes sin seriously. He is just and holy, and he will punish the wicked. But for his people, there is an abundance of love. And that love and goodness includes his promise to satisfy us. We look to so many things to satisfy our desires, but God says, no, look to me. Do you believe that God alone will satisfy the desires of your heart? Teenagers, do you think that God exists to ruin your fun? Do the rules in the Bible seem like there's nothing but roadblocks to your happiness? You know, when I was younger, I kind of fell into thinking that way a little bit. And I really wrestled, am I going to be a follower of Christ? I saw my friends doing lots of things and thought, man, that looks fun. But I know I'm not supposed to do that as a Christian. But what I discovered as I studied the Bible more is that God really is good. And he wants my happiness but I'm most happy when I follow him. The rules in the Bible are for our good. They keep us from things that won't satisfy. God wants to satisfy us. If you're spiritually thirsty, don't pretend your desires are bad. No, come to Jesus and let him quench your spiritual thirst. For he says in John 7, 37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do we really believe that God is good? Have you tasted and seen that he is good? Friends, God is God and he is good. And that's really good news. And Isaiah reminds us that the impact this has is that it counteracts our fear. 
Verse 80 says, Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. You know, it's one thing to give a command, do not fear. It's another to back it up with why you shouldn't be afraid. We tell our kids, don't be afraid of the dark. But then we don't just leave them, we back it up. And our words help. Don't be afraid of the dark. We've locked the doors, you're safe. We say, no, there's not really a monster under your bed. Mommy and Daddy are right across the hall. But the best source of comfort is our presence. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. And friends, that's what our God does. And that's what God through Isaiah is saying here in this passage. He's gone to great lengths to remind us of what kind of God he is because we're prone to forget. But he doesn't do that so that we can pass a theology exam, so we learn more intellectually. No, he does it so that we can find comfort and hope in him. For he is near. For a long time, I thought that fear was sin. Maybe you've thought that. But as I've studied it more, I don't think fear in and of itself is sinful. It can certainly lead to sin, lots of sins. But think about when you act or interact with children. If your child or grandchild is afraid, do you say, stop sinning? You're so afraid. No. You lovingly encourage them. It's okay. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. And that's what our God does as well. He doesn't tell us to repent of our fear. He tells us to come to him. Psalm 56 verse 3 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. There's so much in our world that can make us fearful. So much in our own lives that can bring fear. Wars and rumors of war make us afraid. The unknown of this year can cause fear in our hearts. Your job or conflict in your family might be causing you fear. The transition in the life of our church might make you afraid. Kids, it might be somebody at school or a particular class that gives you fear. Whatever it is, God reminds us that he is God. He is good. He is with us. And he loves us. Brothers and sisters, we have a good God. He's so powerful, he's so good. So we must dare to believe that he is who he says he is. And we can take him at his word because of his son, Jesus. In verse 6, our passage says, I am the first and I am the last. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, as if to say, I am the fulfillment of what we're reading here in Isaiah 44. And if that wasn't enough, our passage ended with the words, there is no rock, I know not any. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, And all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. You see the point? What Isaiah says here in chapter 44 is pointing us forward to Jesus, showing us that Jesus fulfills this. We don't have to be afraid. We have a powerful God who is good. We know that because of Jesus. So look to him. Trust in him. Trust God this year. Don't fear because God is so powerful and he is so good. Rest in his promises. Let us pray.